History. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And you can hear us every week, uh, usually on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast feed. You can get that through uh, iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, and through Mail Order Cassette at $50 a month. So if you subscribe, we should show up every Sunday right before the uh, main evening podcast for Weird Science DC Comics. This week we have a great uh, great topic that I've really been looking forward to doing for a long time and I've been uh, researching for a long time. Chris has been delving into it too. Uh, it's all about underground comics with an X. Mm-hmm. Uh, so turn on your lava lamps and try to grok existence as we take you through this history. So... Um, the first question is, what is an underground comic? Now, I came up with three criteria that are going to apply to underground comics uh, to a point. Um, you may disagree, you may agree, uh, but this is, I thought that these three things had to be fulfilled. It has to be independently produced, it has to be distributed through a closed system, so that would be as opposed to the newsstand system, which is, you know, you, uh, comics and newspapers, especially uh, back in the day, you could buy at candy stores, newsstands, uh, pharmacies, pretty much anywhere where there are periodicals. I would call that an open system. A closed system would be mail order or, uh, you know, today we have uh, direct distribution, but, you know, we'll get into that in the next episode. And another thing about the underground comic that I think makes it underground, and I think this is the most arguable, is that it has to espouse the counterculture. It has to sort of uh, satirize or somehow poke fun at mainstream culture in a way that wouldn't really be accepted in a mainstream magazine. Uh, do you have any uh, additions to that? You think, Chris? Or well, yeah. The uh, the counterculture is, uh, you know, it it kind of uh, it surpasses underground comic into just underground. Yeah, I mean, it could be underground journalism, underground media, underground culture, just, music, uh, everything. Yeah, everything. Yeah. So it's uh, definitely the I I would uh, attribute that to uh, underground comics as well as uh, espousing that counterculture. Yeah, it's it's and it gets dicey because the things that are counterculture through the years change. They evolve, uh, yes. So so you can't just like look at it, you know, a comic from 1930 and apply the same criteria you would in 1960. But uh, it, generally speaking, if you look at it in context, um, that's that's how I feel uh, an underground comic should behave is to be sort of against the mainstream. Now, uh, the first ever real underground comics. Uh, these are called Tijuana Bibles. These are also known as eight pagers, two by fours, gray books, bluesies, and JoJo books. They had other names too. They were first thought to be called Tijuana Bibles in 1940s uh, by uh, Californian porn con- connoisseurs for whom Tijuana was synonymous with illicit sex. You know, you go down to Tijuana, you see the strip show, the lady with the ping pong balls. Blah, 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 with a donkey. We've all heard the stories, right, Chris? Come sure. on, this is nothing. <laughs> um, so, um, also, you have to remember this is a time, too, that, that Mexico was highly villainized uh, early on in, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, this is sort of the marijuana creating the uh, evil people. And the reason we call it marijuana and not any other name like cannabis is because of this demonization of Mexico, but that's sure a totally different podcast. <laughs> yes. So, so Tijuana Bibles were uh, eight-page pornographic stories, often involving celebrities and comic strip characters and typical porno situations. They were produced roughly from the late 1920s until the late 1950s, although there really isn't a ton of, uh, you know, 
hard information about them. There's no like ledger that tells you when these things were produced because uh, they were pretty much passed around in uh, pool halls and, uh, you know, under the counter type deals. Um, anyway, the kind of porn situations you might see are like the uh, hotel bellhop services, the guest, the delivery guy has an extra package. Um, I didn't order a pizza. They, exactly. Uh, well, I didn't want sausage. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, they, it's just, they weren't all eight page. Some of them were 16 pages, and there were a couple of 32 pages. And just a few of the celebrities and characters featured in these comics. So I don't want you to think that uh, this was all like this the hottest, sexiest people of the time. They really <laughs> picked everybody. Um, and, and in the books, their names would have been changed. In this case, I have used their actual names, but often they would have, uh, their names would, would be slightly changed, even though it was clear who they were supposed to be. Uh, W.C. Fields, uh, Mae West was featured in an epic 32-page book with a cover price of $10, although I'm pretty sure that had to be a joke price, since at that time that would have been a week's pay. Uh, Laurel and Hardy... You know, those uh, heartthrobs, Laurel and Hardy, Joan Crawford, yes. Cary Grant, Amos and Andy. And interestingly, not the white guys that played Amos and Andy, but, you know, rendered as actual uh, stereotypical black people. Uh, big, big band jazz legend Benny Goodman, famous gangster John Dillinger, who legend says his penis is kept in a jar at the Smithsonian Institution. That's just a little uh, lore for you. Aunt Jemima. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's pretty hot. Didn't really expect to see that one, but you know she does serve up the hotcakes, so she does. Old West outlaw and sheriff Jesse James. Sure, why not? Mm. Yankees baseball great Lou Gehrig, Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, uh, Joseph Stalin, <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi. Another, another... <laughs> is he the one who had the hunger strike? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> had a hunger strike and apparently uh, had sex with a bunch of ladies. Uh, that's sure. the, that's the part they don't tell you. Uh, Char this one creeps creep <laughs> me out here. Charlie McCarthy, who was the dummy to ventriloquist Edgar Bergen in 1930s, but it's just the dummy. That's mm -hmm. all. It's it's the dummy, and you know he's he's copulating with a, with a human woman. So um, find out if he's made out of wood. That is creepy stuff. I'll tell you. I, I've seen a reprint of it, and it's not uh, quite the sexiest thing I've seen. Not to mention Donald Duck, another another character. Maybe I mean, as you've pointed out, and others have, he doesn't wear pants. But yeah. you never really thought about what that what that implies, really, about his availability. <laughs> uh, Popeye Dagwood Bumstead of the Blondie comic strip, uh, Superman, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman, and a lot of bellhops, tour guide, delivery men, subway riders, and other very horny citizens. And I, I just want to say that there are also maybe two or three dozen other people that are used in these uh, Tijuana Bibles that I've seen that I didn't even bother mentioning because they have no, uh, they're not known at all today, you know. These things were so contextual and so in the moment that it would be somebody in the news, somebody in a news story, or, you know, it would be somebody who was popular for like six months, you know, would be in one of these things. Yeah, for younger listeners, you could think of it as kind of a, uh, a prehistoric Rule 34. Exactly, yeah. Anything, yeah. Anything that can be done as a porno will be done. Yes. So, um, often these comics, they had fake publisher names implying they had come from exotic places or been smuggled in from that mecca of vice and immorality, Tijuana. Uh, just a couple that I saw were La France Publishing. Uh, one that was used over and over was Tabasco Publishing Company in Havana. This would have been before um, Fidel Castro, so this would have been a totally yeah. uh, visitable place. 
and what a swat and co in burp new mexico that was my favorite burp with two p's yeah for some reason is that a real place i don't i i didn't look up but i'd like to i hope it is and i hope that whatever whatever it is down there they're having a lot of a lot of fun down there in what it's what new mexico okay. uh, so you know like i said that you know there was not a lot of record keeping it's a lot of it is anecdotal or non-existent but these were published from the late 20s to the very early 60s and they're thought to be somewhere around 700 and a thousand tijuana bibles in, in total there are no artist or writer credits obviously but they they do use pseudonyms I only saw a couple, which was Feel in a Box and Hard On Ever. And mm -hmm. all of the Tijuana Bibles ever produced that we know of may have been drawn by five artists in total. Um, just looking at them, they are, they, you know, they definitely, there are artists that have done more than one. You can tell by their style, and they seem to have yeah. a broad range of styles, but not much variance in the middle. So it seems like a small number of people doing it. Um, some of them from the crudest, you know, seems like an 11 year old might have drawn it up to somebody that looks actually quite accomplished. So, and uh, the small size and easy assembly made these things very cheap to produce. And I just want to, I just want to point this out very quickly. So if this is an eight page comic that is roughly mm -hmm. three by four, right? So yeah. if you have an eight and a half by 11 piece of typing paper, you can publish one on yep. that. It's just two strips on there. You know, there's some to trim off put it together, and you sell that for a quarter. Now, these, were, these weren't printed on typing paper usually, so it was printed on bigger paper, so the savings were even more, but even doing it at a, you know, copy machine, you know, this is a boon uh, of profits. Absolutely, yeah, there's a very, very low overhead for, yeah. the, uh, for, the, for the materials. Um, now, out of those five artists, we got two that have been positively identified. We're going to start with uh, Ainsworth H., uh, Doc Rankin, uh, born November 27th, 1896 in Buffalo, New York. Uh, passed away January 1954 at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, he was known until recently as Mr. Prolific by uh, Tijuana Bible aficionados. Um, his father was a Scottish doctor, spent the first six years of his life in England before moving to New York City, where he lived in Brooklyn. He would uh, join the Army during the enlistment for World War I, and he served in the Chemical Warfare Service. Uh, after the war ended, he would stay with the Army, drawing cartoons for their publications and for informational purposes. Um, Doc, uh, he was a lifelong military man. In the 1930s, he went into the Army Reserve and took on freelance cartooning work, uh, best known for contributing to a popular newspaper, the Brooklyn Eagle. He would draw about 200 of these Tijuana Bibles in a two-year period uh, in 1935. Say, Mr. Prolific. Um, <laughs> in 1935. Uh, and these are some of the best drawn issues. Uh, you know, he's obviously got a pedigree behind him. Um, he was best known for a ten-parter called The Adventures of the Fuller Brushman. And uh, you can kind of fill in the blanks of that story. <laughs> a Fuller Brushman is... Uh, He's kind of what is like a catch-all term for just a door-to-door -door salesman. Well, no, it was a real. That was a real thing. Was that fuller brushes were sold by door-to-door, -to -door. right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there there were vacuum salesmen in the day. There were brush salesmen. There were also like linoleum sample salesmen. Like mm. a salesman coming to your door in the middle of the day was something that could happen to like talk to the housewife and try to get her to buy greeting cards or that's like sure. kind of where grit comes from and stuff like that. Yes. So. But Fuller Brushes was a real, that was a real brush company that, that was their shtick, was to send people around. And the vacuum guys, Hoover did it too, I believe, right? That was their, the vacuums did it. Yeah, they're the ones who dump the dirt on your carpet. Exactly, show you, how, show you how well it works. 
Uh, he would uh, go on to rejoin the Army full-time in 1940 uh, for World War II, and he stayed in the Army, uh, rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Yep, and like we said, died at Fort Bragg, so that was uh, the end of it. More of an Army man than a Tijuana Bible man, but maybe that's all for the best. Uh, the other guy that was positively identified is Wesley Cherry Morse, born June 17, 1897 in Chicago. He died June 20, 1963 in New York City. He joined the Army in 1918, also for World War I, and he served in France's artillery battery. Uh, after the Army, he contributed artwork to magazines like Judge and Shadowland and did artwork for Collier's Life and The New Yorker. Uh, these were mainly pictures of flappers and to to uh, chorus girls. Um, these are the, you know, ingenues of the 1920s, the young ladies. Um, that yes. The fellas loved so during the Roaring Twenties. He worked alongside pinup art great Albert Vargas doing posters for the Ziegfeld Follies, and he drew a host of short-lived comic strips through the 1920s and 1930s. Most famously, he was the ghost artist for Polly and her pals for Cliff Sterrett while he was on sabbatical for six months in 1925. Now, this guy drew 64 Tijuana Bibles, including four 16-pagers. His best-known Tijuana Bibles are a series that takes place at the 1939 World's Fair, which are so ridiculous, Chris. I almost wish we could show every listener of age. Uh, they are, I mean, yes. they are the stupidest comics you've really ever seen. It's like, uh, I, I, I won't even get into it, but if you can, you can find a lot of these online, actually. They have archived a lot of uh, Tijuana Bibles because yeah. they are pretty much public domain since no one's going to lay claim to them or, you know, could do anything. So <laughs> um, if you want to look these up, I'm sure you can find a lot of them. Uh, later in his life, he would do ad work for nightclubs, including the Latin Quarter and the Copacabana. And in 1953, mm. he was hired to be the creator and artist for Topps Chewing Gums comic, Bazooka Joe. And let me tell you, when you look at Bazooka Joe comics and some of these old <laughs> Tijuana Bibles, you almost think it's like, you know, the, a continuation of the same thing. Um, he based Bazooka Joe on his son, Tally, who did have two working eyes. So that was one change he made. Even the great Will Eisner claims to have been approached at some point uh, in the early 30s by some rough-looking uh, fella to draw some Tijuana Bibles, but uh, he turned them down. Uh, Tijuana Bibles were sold for a quarter apiece in bars, pool halls, and even by some uh, unscrupulous newsstand owners. Yeah, behind uh, the counter guess, kind of thing, yeah. Yes, that, that, that's the, uh, the behind the uh, behind the plastic. Uh, <laughs> we're guessing <laughs> probably about 50 cents for the 16 pages, maybe a dollar for the, for the super rare 32 pages. Now, uh, still, these had to be run at a press, uh, run on press in the dead of night to avoid prosecution for obscenity, like we discussed during the uh, the code days here. Right. And uh, this is just another instance where comics were created in part just so there'd be something wholesome to run during the day shifts to kind of cover up what was going on. That's right. Night. Yeah. So <laughs> in, in a sense, we can say Tijuana Bibles created the, the modern comic book. Yes, they, they did play a role in it. Uh, now, though not every Tijuana Bible was printed offset, uh, some seem to have been uh, produced using rubber stamps, and at least a couple were uh, mimeographed, which is that uh, that kind of smelly purple printing that you, you see you know, from time to time in old stuff. Yeah. Um, some thoughts on the Tijuana Bibles here. This is, uh, you know, perhaps first the, the first outlaw comics. 
um, you know, these things really get to the heart of whatever, whatever celebrity or situation is being is satirized at the point. Um, Captain America, you know, showed Hitler getting socked in the mouth in a, you know, in a mainstream comic, but only a Tijuana Bible would depict him as an oral slave to men and women. <laughs> Depictions of uh, non-white folk, uh, you know, even Italians and Irish at times, they were uh, depicted overly racist, you know, very stereotypical. Um, but black celebrities like heavyweight boxer Joe Lewis, who held the record for 140 consecutive months, were recognized at a time where mainstream comics had virtually no black faces in them at all. Or, or mainstream um, media. I mean, this is a guy, he wasn't, true. Really, he wasn't really covered, you know. People just kind of turned yeah. their back on boxing while he was uh, the heavyweight champ. Well, he was on top of the world, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's easy for us to romanticize these comics. Uh, they're they're just you know the mass production crude junior high schooler doodles. But uh, these comics do press right at that membrane. You know, we've uh, we've talked about during, you know between underground and mainstream art. Uh, they evoke the popular sensibilities as they were at the time, uh, instead of an editorially promoted and idealized version of everyday life at yeah. the time. And that would play, obviously, so that is part of that counterculture we're talking about. Uh, but also, mm-hmm. it, it's going to play, I think, large in the ethics of underground comics uh, going forward. Sure. So, uh, you know... This wasn't the last word on uh, rendered sex, though. There was also uh, our horny fighting forces. Uh, we could never forget and should always remember that our military consists primarily of teenagers. Uh, you know, 18, 19-year-olds sometimes, in some cases younger than that. So these are people whose hormones are raging. They are ready to go, and they basically want to fornicate. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Material that would never be permitted stateside was promoted overseas, uh, and I guess the thing was, if you're going to ask a, ask a young kid to put his life on the line for you, you can let him have his uh, stroke books. It's not a big deal, you know. But you know, things yeah. things that were would have not been sexualized here were heavily sexualized overseas and for the army, and I think that's probably still somewhat true today. But I really couldn't say. Um, hmm. For instance, Esquire magazine, which was famous for its Vargas girls. This is the guy I mentioned before, uh, or that you mentioned before, that um, mm. that guy, what, what was his name? Doc Rankin was a uh, assistant for uh, Alberto Vargas. He said, yeah. uh, anyway, Esquire magazine sent nine million copies of a monthly magazine without ads overseas for the entirety of World War II. And I think they could have also sent it without articles. I think just the girls... <laughs> Probably yep. would have been fine, but that, I mean, that, that's huge, and you'd really never hear of anyone doing anything like that today. Yeah, and even the, the UK tabloid newspaper, the Daily Mirror, they ran a, a daily comic called Jane, uh, drawn by Norman Pett. Uh, this comic ran from 1932 to 1952. It starred uh, the titular Jane in, as a uh, curvaceous secret agent and her terrier Fritz. And in each installment, they would be in some situation that would facilitate Jane losing uh, an article of clothing in each panel. Uh, Jane was modeled after uh, a woman by the name of Christabel Layton Porter. Uh, And during World War II, the Daily Mirror gave out free photos of Christabel in various poses to the Allied forces, including a nude photo shoot that she conducted just after D-Day. And this was like the first, like, Marilyn Monroe of her time. Not the first pretty woman or celebrity, but like... A woman you the just first want sex symbol, yeah. That's a that's the term, yeah. Just to you want pictures of her, and you know you want to do what you want to do with those pictures. Yeah, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill even suggested that Jane was Britain's secret weapon, as she boasted she boosted soldier morale. Uh, they would actually they would actually track uh, 
how how far they would move in after her comics would come out, and they would actually see a, a raise in you know productivity and movement. Wow. Uh, predicated on when those came out uh, to the point where even submarine captains, they were given copies of these strips weeks in advance because they'd be underwater. <laughs> they didn't want them to miss out on any crucial developments. <laughs> wow. Uh, Leighton Porter was acclaimed as Britain's perfect girl in 1939 at a pageant held at the London Palladium. And uh, she lived from 1913 and she, she passed away not too long ago, December 6, 2000. Uh, this would inspire Wally Wood's later comic strip creation for the U.S. Army, Sally Forth, and we'll talk about her in a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point of this is to show that you know sex in pictures became more normalized for our traveling American forces. Uh, doubtless, many of the aforementioned Tijuana Bibles made it to our boys over there as well. Yeah, so they had they had their things to look at, and uh, this is sort of a short thing. Uh, there's really only anecdotal evidence or talks about this. I've never actually seen any of this, but there were internally created porn comics, you know. Um, a lot of the illustrators, professional illustrators or would-be professional illustrators, they were drafted into the Army, so they uh, had to get their uh, creative expression out somehow. Uh, there was <laughs> there was, there was some official comics, like uh, in the uh, magazine Stars and Stripes and Yank, they would feature comics from some of the artistically talented soldiers. That's where uh, Sad Sack and Bill Maudlin's Willie and Joe uh, got their start. But, well, these would be a little bit racier, but they were not subversive, and they were definitely not underground. You know, it's usually like uh, Willie and Joe would slack off, or they, you know, they would see a hot girl and make, make a comment, but there was nothing. Um, but some of our talented draftees are said to have drawn porn comics that were copied and passed around among soldiers. Um, a couple of them that I really, you know, that I have, Fred Rhodes, creator of Sad Sack, said he definitely had. Uh, there's also a rumor that Theodore Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss, who did those instructive uh, cartoons for the Army under the name Snafu, about not getting VD and, you know, being careful uh, who you talk to, loose lips, sink ships, and all that. He's said to also have passed around some pornographic fare, and I have looked at some racier things he's, he drew back in the day, but I don't know if they were definitely in the army. And of course, you know, we can't forget uh, superhero characters like Wonder Woman, Liberty Bell. These played up to their cheesecake uh, aspects. You know, Wonder Woman didn't necessarily have to wear that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> what we call it, the sk- ice skating skirt or whatever, you know, the. Uh, yeah. but she did. And that was to the joy the, of all the soldiers. So this was all, all done with a calculation for the army. Absolutely, and uh, we're going to cover right now something that we discussed briefly during our uh, Comics Code coverage. It's uh, Joe Schuster's uh, Knights of Horror, which uh, which we talked about as a uh, precursor to some of the uh, some of the Kefauver events there. Yep. Now, uh, this is uh, following the de- their departure from Superman. Uh, Siegel and Schuster entered into several lawsuits over ownership of the character, which is something we will cover at length. Another time. Yes. Uh, this was a rather costly endeavor, and uh, though they did reach a settlement over the rights to Superboy, to do so they had to officially sign away their rights to Superman. I think uh, maybe maybe some of our listeners will remember that uh, around the time of Infinite Crisis, probably 2006, 2007, they killed Connor Kent Superboy, and they brought in Superboy Prime, but yep. they changed his name to Superman Prime for a while. And uh, it wasn't until, I want to say, like 2009, 2010, that they were able to bring Superboy back. With with uh, the note that he's created by yeah, with, Jerry and what Joe is, Schuster, yeah. What do they say, like, by special, by special association with them or something? With the like families, that? yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. 
Um, now, any financial gains they got from this uh, this endeavor were reportedly spent on paying their very, very costly legal counsel. <laughs> uh, the uh, the pair would try their luck at other publishing houses, including Magazine Enterprises, where they launched something that sounds awesome. It's called Funny Man. Oh, you never you never saw Funny Man? That was, that was uh, reprinted a few years back, and it's pretty crazy. I think I think that's going to be a, a wave twelve of uh, Marvel's movies. Right <laughs> no, that uh, that flopped. Yeah, that didn't go very far. Uh, by 1954, uh, Siegel, who was the writer of the two, had returned to DC Comics and even to uh, Superman Comics. By this point, however, Schuster had developed eye problems, which made it difficult for him to find work as a mainstream com- mainstream comics artist. He'd find odd jobs, uh, sometimes illustrating erotic art for more adult comics and magazines. Uh, now, this Nights of Horror, this was a black-and-white illustration book produced by Macla, M-A-C-L-A. I don't know. I couldn't find anything on them. I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, these, uh, these illustration books were reportedly cranked out of Schuster's neighbor's basement, um, had a very small circulation, and may have only been available in adult bookstores in and around Times Square. It would last 16 issues with a total of 108 illustrations. Schuster was said to have been paid $100 per issue. Uh, the, the pictures depicted sexual acts, bondage, and torture in which both men and women were the perpetrators and victims. We do have some statistics. Uh, men would dominate women 71 times. Women dominate men nine times. Women ain't, dominate... Huh? Ain't that always the way? <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> Now, uh, women dominate other women nine times, and only one man dominating another man uh, occurred. But the illustration's focus was on the woman in the picture, as to not make it look homosexual. Uh, Torture devices, here we go, included whips, which were used 18 times, probably the most prolific weapon, uh, air hoses, alligator pits, walls and chains, cactuses, (laughs) chains, Corsets, electric wires, fingernails, guns, hairbrushes, hot pokers, hypodermic needles, an iron maiden, knives, paddles, a paddle machine, spiked beds, spiked gloves, wooden switches, and water hoses. Wow. Uh, They also featured use of domination techniques, including use of champagne, hypnotism, marijuana, opium, and polygamy. Oh, okay. That's a, that's a domination tech. You know, I wouldn't consider an alligator say. pit a torture device either. Uh, that's sort of just like a horror, a nightmare, but I guess it could be. You could torture someone with that, yeah. Yeah, some people might get off on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, many of these uh, characters looked very similar to cast members of uh, Superman comics. Uh, like we said before, you know, you could see Jimmy Olsen paddling Lana Lang on the bottom. Yep. Uh, now, only four of these illustrations featured fully clothed women. The rest were in various stages of undress. And only six illustrations depict scenes of consensual sex, which is pretty wild. Uh, and of those six, only two were heterosexual, four were lesbian. Yeah, uh, from a technical standpoint, these magazines were very unprofessionally produced. The text was not typeset, and it appeared to be photocopied type typewritten text, which it almost certainly was. Uh, yeah. the, the work inside was uncredited. Schuster's involvement was unknown until 1989 when comics historian Craig Yo did some four-color forensics. And uh, he says, upon real- realizing it, he said, oh my God, Joe Schuster. The art was unsigned, but just as a criminal can be identified by his fingerprints, an artist's work, with, ooh, excuse me, even without a signature, can be unmistakable through the trained eye. This erotica had Joe Schuster written all over it. Because it's by him, the art looks as if Superman, Clark Kent, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Lex Luthor are in a porno flick. Uh, Larry Ty, author of Superman, the high-flying history of America's most enduring hero, agrees with Yo's take. 
He says Joe didn't sign the illustrations, but they were his. Uh, this little mag likely would have been forgotten had it not been tied in with the Brooklyn Thrill Killers case, which we did discuss during our five-part Comics Code Authority series. Uh, that was the thing that happened right after the hearings, as a matter of fact, the yep. summer after, that certainly did bolster the case for creating the Comics Code. And uh, mm -hmm. our old friend, uh, Wortham, he termed it pornographic horror literature. Um now, you know, it's definitely, we, Chris was, and I were even talking before, this is a stretch to call it a comic. It's it's pictures yeah. and words, but, you know, the, the pictures are illustrative, but uh, I think it's important just to show that more and more normalizing of seeing, you know, raunchy things drawn on page, uh, you know, like sure. this is just not something that was happening. Before. You know, you, you have to think about the growth of human history, like people didn't use paper to draw Porno comics, paper was hard to come by for a long time, you know, and then things have changed uh, thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning, and we did again mention this in our Comics Code, I think it was the third episode, but in, in that series, uh, in uh, summer of 1954, the uh, Brooklyn Thrill Killers, which were Jewish neo-Nazis by the name of Jack Koslow, Robert Trachtenberg, Melvin Mittman, and Jerome Lieberman, Koslow was the only... 18-year-old, uh, if I recall, so he was the only yeah. one that actually was arrested, or he, he became... He testified, or he, it, yeah. they, at least they got a uh, they got a quote from him, yeah. He, he was he was considered the ringleader of the thing, but he, he said that he was inspired by these uh, comics by Joe Schuster, and, and that's what caused him to go out. I forget, they tortured and killed two people, is that right? Uh, uh, they, uh, yeah, a handful of homeless people, yeah. Mm. I, think, I don't remember the exact number. I think there were at least two two murders. Uh, anyway, they were they were some bad kids, and they were inspired. Yeah. They said they claimed to have been inspired by this comic, but again, as we said at the time, uh, Jack Coslow was very uh, aware of who Frederick Wortham was, and even said he had something to tell, tell the guy. Nutty shrink or something, something yeah. like that. So you know, he, I think I think he knew that he was about to uh, possibly get noticed or something, or say something uh, out of, out of uh, out of pocket. <laughs> He was going to get his 15 minutes and at the same time uh, perhaps facilitate the censorship that his idol Adolf Hitler would have been proud of. Oh, maybe. Yeah, it's true. There you go. Maybe we can throw all the comics on a bonfire. That'd be great. There you go. <laughs> um, now, Knights of Horror has been reproduced in a hardcover book called Secret Identity, the Fetish Art of Superman's co-creator Joe Schuster, which I, I do have. Uh, written by Craig Yo with an introduction by Stan Lee. And from Stan's intro, he says... He sees a delusion, disillusioned and desperate Joe Schuster forced to accept commissions to draw what amounted to S&M erotic horror books. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on, we're going to discuss a, a fellow by the name of Harvey Kurtzman for a bit. Uh, he was born October 3rd, 1924 in Brooklyn, New York. His parents were immigrants, David Kurtzman and Edie Sherman from the Ukraine. They emigrated to America after World War I. Uh, their first son, Zachary, was born in 1923. Uh, while in America, David, his father, had become a Christian scientist, and when he tried to treat a bleeding also with prayer, he passed away. Huh. This was in 1928 at age 36. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was watching a uh, a document or a monologue actually by uh, Spalding Gray, uh, where he was talking about a macula pucker he had on his eye, and he'd been raised a Christian scientist, so he had tried. To, Praying for it to go away, and it, it, it did not work. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work a lot. Uh, something about that as a, as a medicine doesn't seem to work. No, and, and actually around uh, around Phoenix, we've got a few uh, we've got a few of those churches around here. It's a wild scene. <laughs> uh, now, uh, 
Following the uh, the passing of David, uh, things had gotten so bad that Edie had to place her sons in an orphanage for three months while she secured some sort of employment, which, I mean, this is 1928, uh, not an easy thing for women to do. And in the coming months, it would not be an easy thing for anyone to do. Yeah. Uh, she would eventually remarry a Russian-Jewish immigrant by the name of Abraham Perks. Uh, he was a printing engraver. Uh, Zach and Harvey kept the name Kurtzman, while Edie t- took uh, Perks' name. Uh, they had another son together named David in 1931. I wonder if that was named after her first husband. Mm, it would uh, make sense, maybe. It would. Uh, now, the Kurtzman Perks moved to the Bronx in 1934. Uh, Perks was in the Engravers Union, and the communist uh, periodical uh, Daily Worker was the household newspaper. And uh, this is a pretty good time to point out that for the 20s and 30s, Kurtzman came from a somewhat unconventional background. Yeah, he, he had, you know, his parents were, and even his stepdad, obviously very literate, very, like, uh, experimental, I guess we could call it, and willing to live kind of a more unconventional lifestyle than, than sure. many might. Yeah, almost like a, a, a domestic uh, counterculture of themselves. Sort of. Uh, now, uh, Kurtzman would, uh, uh, Perks would bring Kurtzman to work to show him the, uh, the printing game, and he encouraged his artwork. Harvey was shy but bright, and he even skipped a grade in elementary school. He was uh, also recognized as artistically talented by kids and adults alike. Uh, he fell in love with comic strips and uh, the fledgling books compiled, set, compiling those strips in the early 30s. Uh, was a huge fan, uh, even idolized Will Eisner's Spirit of the Spirit. <clears throat> he said that the Spirit set a standard by which other comic books would be measured, and uh, that Eisner was the uh, greatest, a virtuoso cartoonist, of his of his kind, who had never who had never been seen before, and uh, so when you put Kurtzman's page layouts against Eisner's comic plotting, you can definitely see that there is a there is an influence there. Oh yeah, I mean Eisner's known for sort of breaking your standard idea of what a comic page looks like, and Kurtzman yeah. follows that lead. But that would happen obviously later in his life. But it, when you Certainly. when you put them side by side, it's it's obvious. That there, yeah, there's definitely an influence. Uh, now, since the Daily Worker had some pretty cruddy and preachy comics, Kurtzman would uh, search through his neighbor's garbage for uh, better full-color Sunday supplements. Uh, one comic strip in the Daily Worker was the uh, Ruling Clause by a fellow by the name of A. Redfield, which was a pseudonym for a uh, famous New Yorker cartoonist, Sid Hoff. Uh, it was a one-panel comic strip where fat, rich people would say disparaging things about the rank-and-file humanity. It reminds me of some of uh, Ann Nocenti's Daredevil work. <laughs> uh, now, uh, this Sid Hoff, he may be perhaps better, he may be better known nowadays as a uh, prolific children's book writer. Uh, he did things like Danny and the Dinosaur, which uh, at this point has sold over 10 million copies. That's right. So if you're wondering why your child has gone communist, you should yes, check, if, check the bookshelves. Yes, if your first grader is wearing gray. <laughs> and calling himself a member of the proletariat, eh, it might, yes. be, might be Danny the Dinosaur. <laughs> so um, at age 14, Kurtzman won a drawing competition, had his work published in Tip Top Comics number 36, excuse me, April 1939 by St. John Publications. He won the John Wanamaker Scholarship to attend the High School of Music and Art and graduated age 16 in 1941. And then got a scholarship to Cooper Union. He dropped out after a year to make comics. Um, but you, you got to understand, Cooper Union, up until, like, I think last year, this was a free mm. school that was super hard to get into. They took something ridiculous like 100 students a year or, like, 110 wow. students a year. Uh, yeah, 100% free, but it's one of the hardest, and it was all engineering and drafting. So 
for him to walk away from that that's he was he was compelled the man was compelled yes. to make comics um it did some odd work through lewis first stat studio from 1942 to 1943 including some comics for the daily worker so everything <laughs> had to come back full circle for him in a way right there uh he was drafted into the infantry in 1943 but he never went overseas he uh did lots of cartooning work for pamphlets and internal army newsletters and he picked up commercial work during his tour of duty including a bunch of gag strips appearing in yank which actually was an internal uh magazine that we talked about before the army book, yeah. yeah but uh this they they would appear in october 1945 now once he was discharged from the army which would have been 1945 i'd have to guess or maybe 46 possibly early 46 um he found a lot of competition in comics uh for a lot of reasons first of all comics were very you know very robust business at the time but also i have a feeling a lot of these guys got discharged right around then because the war was uh concluding so sure. um yeah, suddenly a lot of a lot of guys on the street looking for work. So he teamed up with his other high school, the music art and of music and art alumni Charles Stern and Will Elder, who would later work on Mad and a bunch of other things with Harvey Kurtzman to form Charles William Harvey Studio in 1947. Uh, that was pretty unsuccessful, though. They did, they you know got the work that they could get and didn't do too well. But he kept that office until 1951. Having done crossword puzzles for Martin Goodman prior to uh, World War II, he had an in at Timely Comics. These are the guys that would later become Marvel Comics. And so a relative by marriage and editor Stan Lee hired Harvey to do page fillers, which Stan titled Hey Look. Uh, Kurtzman did 150 of them from 1946 to 1949. And then he sort of bopped around doing comics work here and there and largely left them unfulfilled. And then he saw a copy of Lev Gleason's Crime Does Not Pay, which is a book we also talked about during our Comics Code series. Mm -hmm. And this had a big impact on his style at EC Comics, which is where he would start working in 1950. He started getting regular work. Uh, that was the year their new trend line of horror, sci-fi, and war stories began. These are the comics people normally think of when they think of EC Comics, uh, you know, Weird Science, which is a, you know, the name of yep. the website here. And... Uh, uh, Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt, and yada, yada, yada. Um, Kurtzman, uh, later that year, he became editor and writer uh, of Two-Fisted Tales, the no issue number one in November, December. And that was a really unique war comic that did not glamorize war, which was uncommon at the time. It really showed a sort of bleak and hard look at war with some really hard luck guys in it. Uh, now, while at EC Comics, there's, there's a much larger story to tell here. Uh, but Al Feldstein was the other editor, really, at EC Comics, and he was sort of Bill Gaines' right-hand man, and Kurtzman was very jealous of him. Uh, Al Feldstein did most of the horror titles, of which there were at least three, right off the top of my head. There was Vault of Horror, mm. Haunt of Fear, Crypt of Terror, or Tales from the Crypt, yeah. which was, uh, I think it was actually Crypt of Terror uh, back in the comic form. But, uh... I think there was only Two-Fisted Tales was the only war comic, and that was all really Kurtzman was doing. So uh, he was jealous of Mal Feldstein, worked a lot faster, uh, and some might say he was less hard on himself, and therefore he was able to work faster, so he made more money. He, had, he was the horror line outsold Two-Fisted Tales, and there were three of them versus the Two-Fisted Tales, which is one comic. So Gaines suggested Kurtzman do a humor magazine to supplement his income, and so Mad Magazine was born. Yeah, and um, Mad uh, Magazine, um, or what was it? What was it originally called? Uh, I think Madhouse. They wanted to call it, or what? Or what are you thinking of? 
Uh, the uh, the first issue was it tails to drive you mad or something like that or oh yeah tails calculated to drive you mad that's right uh, that was yeah, the full so, title <laughs> yeah so issue one uh, came out October November 1952 uh, published by Bill Gaines at EC Comics um, now like we were saying this is this was essentially a gift to Harvey Kurtzman who was working on that war title. Uh, some don't realize that Kurtzman wrote everything in the first two issues of Mad and even drew the covers and uh, one feature as well. Uh, the, the mag uh, picked up popularity after issue number four, uh, at which point the other editor, Al Feldstein, decided he wanted a Me Too. And uh, they started Panic, which Panic number one came out in February, March 1954. And this one we talked about, uh, this one loomed large in our uh, comments yeah. code uh, discussion. Because this is the one that got banned in Massachusetts, blah, 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 banned in Massachusetts, for their uh, depiction of Santa Claus and the uh, night before Christmas. That's right. Um, and uh, was it really helped to bolster the claims of uh, the Kefauver hearings? Uh, Kurtzman was not pleased by this. Uh, he considered Feldstein a hack. And uh, meanwhile, uh, he was entertaining an offer to do a, a new humor magazine with uh, Hugh Hefner from uh, Playboy. Gaines would try to placate Kurtzman by turning Mad into a more upscale black and white magazine. So it was it was a it had like the same trim as a comic initially, right? Oh yeah, it was it was it was just a comic back then. It was sort of an anthology mm. comic. It was, you know, full color, just sat right next to all the other comics on the stands and, you know, everything was panels and word balloons. Hmm, it was all sequential art in an anthology format. Yep. Cool, uh, and then uh, so it was. It was transformed into this more upscale kind of boutique magazine in '55, which is the uh, one which, that we would recognize, really. You yeah, know, that's that's pretty much what we've seen in our lifetimes. Certainly, and you know there was a discussion that this was done in order to circumvent the comics code because a magazine wouldn't be held to the same standards as the comics as the comic book would, but this is not true in this case. Um, getting by the code was just a bonus <laughs> that yeah. they hadn't even considered when they made the change. Uh, after this change, Kurtzman would uh, stay on for a year, but the uh, lore of Hugh Hefner proved to be a little bit too strong, and, and so he left. Um, you know, the whole story is uh, Kurtzman was adamant about creative freedom. He basically didn't want Al Feldstein to have his two cents on anything that he himself did. Uh, so he demanded a 51% stake in Gaines's company. Uh, he claimed he didn't need the money, he just wanted the control, which is kind wow. of funny. <laughs> this proved to be a bridge too far for Gaines, and Kurtzman was, he, he either was shown the door or he just walked out the door. Um, now, this is important because an entire generation of kids would see Mad Magazine and be inspired by the comics that were more more commentary than story. And uh, Kurtzman's work and craft in particular would influence an entire generation of underground comics with an X. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this is the generation that we think of when we say underground comics yeah, with I, an X. I mean, to me, the DNA is right there, you know, between Mad and a lot of these comics that would come out in the 60s and 70s and even going yeah. up into the 80s. Uh, as we talk about Mad had a dozen or more uh, imitators, including its own company imitating it. Yeah. So it was hugely influential, but it, but beyond just uh, you know bringing it bringing in humor, it it showed the world that satire was something that what could sell and was interesting, you know, and and yeah, it could be engaging. You know, people would be interested in checking it out. I mean, yeah. you know, it, you know, satire is not a new thing at this point either. Will Rogers was a famous satirist. Mark Twain even was a satirist, but. Uh, the idea of satire as like a as like a type of humor was new. Uh, before that, humor was vaudeville. 
and pratfalls yeah. and stuff like slapstick, that and yeah. one-liners and slapstick and now we got like satire is commentary on uh the plasticness of society and and mm -hmm. crazy things like that so um even though mad obviously was not an underground comic by any stretch of the imagination it definitely shares uh or contributed to the dna that would go into the underground comics and we're going to talk a little bit more about that dna but we're going to do it after this break but you you affected that that era as much or more than any single man well since we're flinging compliments around here let me uh throw back one at, at him and that is if you were talking give a moment ago about uh, uh trying to tie responsibility of trends onto two people. The major change in comic books, in my, in my opinion, occurred at two times. One is when Harvey started mad because for the first time, the main thrust of the comic book, and I'm talking about the medium itself, the, the package itself, moved from, uh, uh, from the fantasy supply uh, the, the ersatz adventure and so forth on to a more realistic or a life connected material. Once Harvey started doing satirical material, it, it moved into that, into that direction. So the whole field moved into that, single-handedly moved into that direction. The second major change occurred in San Francisco in the 60s with the underground people, I believe. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. So we're back now, and we're going to continue on with some info about uh, Harvey Kurtzman. When we left off, he had walked away from Mad Magazine and walked straight over to Hugh Hefner of Playboy, and he started a magazine uh, with Hugh Hefner called Trump. Uh, mm -hmm. Originally, Tr Hugh Hefner had met Kurtzman in 1953, uh, very early on, and discussed doing a magazine, but it didn't get around to it till 56, and this was after Playboy had already taken off, and, and Hefner was living pretty high on the hog at the time. Uh, Kurtzman recruited Al Jaffe and Arnold Roth and Bill Elder and Jack Davis, left Mad Magazine for Trump. Uh, Wally Wood contributed to the first issue, but ultimately he would stick with Mad. Uh, Al Jaffe's the guy you probably know best is doing the fold-ins at the back of Mad, even up until maybe today. I know he's still around. Uh, hmm. Arnold Roth, I believe, didn't Arnold Roth draw Wonder Woman, or is that a different guy I'm thinking of? I think I'm thinking of a different guy. Not sure. Um, number one issue of Trump came out uh, January 1957, and this is where you can really see Kurtzman's layout acumen, as well as his sharp satire. It's essentially what Mad Magazine looks like today, you know, when it, frankly, they just ripped him off, uh, part and parcel, as, as far as a look of a magazine goes, although Trump was a glossy magazine. Although I have to confess that I have not looked at an issue of Mad in about 20 years, so I can't really tell you what it looks like today. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about the Mad Magazine of our youth and probably what I would consider to be what you'd expect to see when you open a Mad Magazine uh, in life, but who knows, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's a new... Uh, format for millennials. I don't really know how it what's going on over there uh, I know they're mm. basically folded right into DC Comics production department. So I assume that everything is top-notch Now Trump was a glossy 50 cent magazine that heavily satirized straight society and included frank references to sex and drug use uh, It only lasted two issues. The second one came out in March 1957 now there are conflicting stories as to why it was canceled some say Kurtzman didn't meet his deadlines, but the two issues that came out did come out on time, so 
that does not really uh, bear the truth, you know? It, it doesn't seem to be yeah. true. Um, and it was supposed to be on a bi-monthly schedule, so uh, I think it's more likely Hefner had just overextended himself financially. He purchased uh, some massive amount of office space in Chicago, and uh, I think that it the high cost of producing Trump, because he was paying these guys uh, a tremendous rate. I, I, we, I think we had the numbers. I don't know, maybe I didn't have the numbers uh, for our... Uh, comics code thing. I don't even know if that even came up. Probably not, but... I don't think so. He paid them a lot. He paid them way more than they had been making, as well as it being, again, a glossy magazine and requiring a lot of stuff. He wanted to do, like, photo shoots and all this stuff. He was running up the bill. Um, so, it's likely that Hefner looked at that and looked at his own finances, and he got cold feet about doing a second magazine that he wasn't so sure about. But uh, Hefner and Kurtzman did remain friendly, and Hugh let Harvey keep his office space for a year for free, and he repurposed much of this unpublished third issue for an independently magazine by the name of... Humbug. Yeah. This is uh, Al Jaffe, Arnold Roth, Harry Chester, Will Eldner, and Kurtzman. Uh, they pulled together uh, $6,500, the lofty sum, yeah. to, uh, try to, <laughs> to try to pick up where Trump left off. Actually, I wonder what that was back in the you know, It probably, was, it probably might, was not Trump change. Yeah, we're probably yeah, that's, that's like, like $20,000 or something, yeah. Sure. Uh, now, though each contributed a different amount of money, they were equal partners in the, in, in Humbug Incorporated. Uh, though clearly, Harvey Kurtzman was the man in charge, at least creatively. Uh, Jack Davis did work for Humbug, but was not a partner. Uh, the money breakdown for the contribution is as follows. 2500 from Roth, from Arnold Roth. 1500 from Al Jaffe. $1,000 from Bill Elder, $1,000 from Kurtzman, and $500 from uh, Harry Chester. So Kurtzman doesn't even have a majority stake. No. <laughs> he's, one of the low, he's on the low end, but still, he pretty much ran the whole show here. This is true. Uh, now, Humbug was more politically bent than either Mad or Trump. Um, it was printed at the same trim size as a comic book, so roughly six and five-eighths by ten and an eighth. And it had a four-color cover, but a two-color interior, a black and a different highlight color, depending on the issue. Sold for 15 cents, which was uh, a bit more than what was on the stands at the time. Uh, the four-color comics at the time were, were 10 cents. Uh, this magazine did not do well, uh, despite a nine-page write-up in the 1957 Playboy and changing uh, the format to a standard magazine trim with issue number 10, it had folded at issue 11. Uh, this was October of 1958, and uh, this issue went from 32 to 48 pages to make it more magazine-y. Yeah. Um, Kurtzman, uh, he included an editorial in the last in the final issue. It says, uh, man, we're beat. Satire has got us beat. 1953, we started Mad Magazine for a comic book publisher, and we did some pretty good satire, and it sold very well. 1956, we started Trump Magazine, and we worked much harder, and we did much better satire, and we sold much worse. 1957, we started Humbug Magazine, and we worked, hard, we worked hardest of all and turned out the very best satire of all, which of course now sells like the very worst of all. And now, as they throw rocks at Vice President Nixon, as space gets cluttered with missiles, and as our names are carefully removed from our work in mad pocketbooks, we, a feeling of beatness creeps through our satirical veins and capillaries, and we think of how George S. Kaufman once said, satire is something that closes Saturday night. And uh, yet to look at the magazine, you can see the direct influence of, on the style of art and the humor that would define the underground comics scene for the next decade. Really just has to be seen to believe. It's very, it's, it's very prescient. Yeah. Um, 
luckily, uh, Fantagraphics put out a nice two-volume collection of this uh, a couple of years ago. And unluckily, as with a lot of things the boutique press does, it is very expensive. It is, yeah. I think it's. I think it retails for a hundred bucks, but it's definitely cool. It's a great historic item, and as you're going to see more in the next episode, Humbug in particular had a huge influence on a lot of these guys that did uh, underground comics in into the '60s and '70s. But we'll get to that next episode. However, Kurtzman did not disappear. Uh, he then co-published a magazine called Help with Warren Magazine. These are the creepy and eerie and vampirella guys that you know so well uh, this mm-hmm. lasted from 1960 to 1965 now the, again this was co-published he was not hired it was harvey kurtzman was co-owner of this whole thing and harvey did that obviously so he could retain complete creative control uh, issue number one came out august 1960 hired a lot of the same old gang from madden and even beyond that al jaffe jack davis bill elder and the rest of the guys we've already been talking about um, this was an inexpensively produced black and white humor magazine that relied heavily on making fumetti. Now, that's American fumetti, which is photographs with word balloons, and not Italian fumetti, which is the word for Italian comic books. Uh, and they used mostly stock photographs and pictures taken in-house, which was obviously very cheap to produce. Um, mm. These fumetti would feature various folks, known and unknown, but some of the known people that we know today would be John Cleese, Woody Allen. I mean, must he, Woody Allen must have been like 10, you know? Well, not that young, but <laughs> I mean, you know, 65. He was a young guy. He was like 20. He was a young kid, 20 yeah. 20 or something. Um, and Orson Bean. Terry Gilliam, who was an animator of Monty Python, he was a assistant for Kurtzman. And in fact, he met John Cleese at help, which would ultimately lead to Monty Python's Flying Circus. So it sort of had mm-hmm. a... Uh, connection there and Gloria Steinem later of Ms. Magazine she was also an assistant this is where she really got her first magazine experience at help now this was her Kurtzman's most successful venture uh, personally I mad might have done actually better in its day but that was another day another time Primarily because he made it for peanuts. He didn't spend a lot, so it could make a lot of profit. He'd call on favors from high-profile friends for a submission or two to appear in a fermetti or to write an article, and then he'd have a few pages by one or two of the standard guys, like Al Jaffe or Bill Elder, and then he'd fill the rest with unknown, unproven talent. But this is where future underground comic superstars like Robert Crumb, Gilbert Shelton, Spain Rodriguez, Skip Williamson, and Jay Lynch would see their first published work. So it was huge and definitely has a yeah. direct connection to the stuff that would just come out now just a few years from now. Uh, just to wrap up on Kurtzman, for the purposes of this uh, episode, Kurtzman and Elder produced Little Annie Fanny cartoon for Playboy from 1962 to 1988. Uh, real funny stuff, painted as uh, in every one, as I recall. He taught at the School of Visual Arts from 1973 to 1990. And he reconciled with Bill Gaines in the 1980s and contributed a couple of things to MED. I I believe one of them at least was drawn by Bill Elder, his old uh, high school of art and design uh, alumnus. And he died February 21, 1993 of liver cancer in Mount Vernon, New York. And of Kurtzman, cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer said, we have lost our Orson Welles. Uh, We mentioned earlier, briefly, uh, we mentioned Wally Wood, and we're going to talk about him a little bit more in depth now. Uh, He was born Wallace Allen Wood in Managua, Managa? Sure. (laughs) Managa, Minnesota. Sure. Uh, June 17th, 1927. He uh, grew up having a pretty contentious relationship with his father, a fellow by the name of Max, who was a real-life lumberjack. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I guess Minnesota, sure. It, it makes uh, sense, but I, I find it very exciting. Wow, a real lumberjack. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I don't have enough flannel shirts for that. No. Um, <laughs> he, he would draw from an early age. He was inspired by uh, the great comic strips at the time. Uh, at age six, he had a dream that he had found a magical pencil that could draw anything. Uh, his father, Max, thought drawing was kind of the you know, kind of for the sissies. He was not very supportive of it. However, his mother, Alma, did support his artistic endeavors. She thought it was a something to uh, something to pursue. Sure. Uh, they they moved around a lot, and their home life was not great. Uh, so they moved around a lot. Uh, <laughs> Whoops. Uh, Max and Alma separated when Wood was a teenager. Uh, he would graduate from high school in 1944 and signed up with the U.S. Merchant Marines uh, just in time for World War II to end. Hey! Uh, that's, that's some uh, fortuitous time. Uh, he hey, if you're, if you're going to sign up for the Army, that's the best time, to, the do time to do it. That's the time to do it. Uh, he would enlist in the U.S. Army's 11th Airborne Division, and uh, he was eventually stationed in Japan on the island of Hokkaido. Um, he enrolled in the Minneapolis School of Art in 1947. Uh, he only lasted there one term. Uh, he would be discharged from the military in 1948. Uh, he would go to New York with his mother and brother, Glenn, uh, worked at Bickford's as a busboy while trying to pitch his artwork to publishers all around town. Uh, he enrolled in the Hogarth School of Art, but again, only lasted uh, he he lasted a whole semester this time. Yeah, terms. I guess that's a good. Thing. School was not for him. Let's just say <laughs> it ain't for everybody. No, it ain't. For, the, the dreamers do better outside. Um, in October 1948, he would meet uh, John Severin while they were while they both waited to pitch us to a small publisher. Uh, Severin would invite Wood uh, back to a studio, which is the Charles William Harvey Studio, owned by uh, Charlie Stern, Bill Elder, and Harvey Kurtzman. That's right, the very one we mentioned, yep. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He would find out that uh, Will Eisner was looking for a background artist for the spirit. Uh, He went and got the job immediately. In 1952, he would draw the Sunday comic for two months. Uh, his first solo gig was drawing uh, Chief Obstacle, the Woeful Indian. Uh, <laughs> it's a series of strips uh, early in uh, 1949 for the Union Party of uh, Mouth Kisco Newsletter. And uh, he signed uh, his work for this, uh, Woody. And uh, some pretty uh, pretty timely uh, timely racial insensitivity. <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently he apparently he actually didn't reveal that he did them for like three decades. Afterward, he just didn't want to talk about them, but he eventually did fess up and pull them out of a he drawer somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he would uh, get his own studio on West 64th Street in Manhattan near uh, Columbus Circle. And I, I love this. He's got his famous rule of comics, which uh, a lot of listeners may have heard before. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, never draw anything you can copy. Never copy anything you can trace. Never never trace anything you can cut out and paste up. Yep, that's how, we, that's how you get work done fast, boy. Words to live by, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he worked his way into comics first by lettering and then moved up to inking and eventually uh, doing full, play, full pages of anything. Uh, he did lots of westerns and uh, romance comics. He would eventually work for EC, first inking for Joe Orlando, then doing work for every comic in the new trend line. Uh, He was instrumental in uh, convincing Gaines to start up some science fiction comics, uh, Weird Science and Weird Fantasy, which would ultimately become Weird Science-Fantasy. Hey. Yeah, why not? Um, the amount, the amount of variety of work he did during the fifties is too much to state here. He could definitely carry his own episode eventually down the line. And, and a lot of it would just be a list of the things that he did. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, he worked for practically every comic book company, uh, except, uh, national, which would become DC. Yeah. Um, 
Isn't it? Yeah. He uh, he contributed uh, painted covers to Science Fiction Digest. He did illustrations for children's books, and who knows what else. He's just a very prolific, very active guy. Um, to, to make a, a long story a little less long, he uh, he did not starve for work, and, and he was very sought after uh, for his uh, thick, expertly lined style, uh, expertly inked style, as well as his acumen for drawing uh, the, the, the good-looking uh, good broads, oh, yeah. the sexy ladies. And uh, but importantly to the history of underground comics, he produced something called uh, Wits End, when that's with a lowercase W to you, uh, which and a Z. That's true. It's W I T Z E N D. Uh, this was inspired by Wood Studios Dan Adkins' planned fanzine outlet in 1965. So Dan Adkins was working at uh, Wally Wood Studio. And uh, he showed him what he had planned to do in this fanzine, and Wood was very inspired, began compiling stuff for this magazine, initially titled Etc., but right almost uh, up to the point of printing it, they found out that another magazine had the same name, so he quickly changed it to Wit's End. Um, it would kind of actually, it depends how you, how you read the story because, uh, reading an interview with Dan Adkins, he made it seem like it would sort of co-opted his planned science fiction fanzine in total, uh, which they were just calling Dan Adkins outlet around the office before they settled on uh, a title, which would have been et cetera at first. But this would also be Dan Adkins' second fanzine. So he probably did come up with the idea to do a self-published thing and would, uh, you know, took it from there, and just because Adkins didn't do his and Wood did do his, it doesn't mean that one became the other. If you follow what I'm trying to say here, it doesn't really matter either way. Uh, Which then launched in the summer of 1966 and opened with Statement of No Policy. Our only aim is to make this magazine the best, most entertaining one we possibly can. Our theory is that an artist is his own best editor and when and left to his own devices will turn out his best work. Now, Wits End featured mostly sci-fi stories and comics, mostly comics, actually, almost all comics, uh, by some big names in the industry and names soon to be big, including, but not limited to, Al Williamson, Bill Elder, of course, his old buddy, Reed Crandall, Steve Ditko, who actually debuted Mr. A in the third issue, Jack Kirby submitted a picture of The Thing in a Beatles wig, which was noted as a self-portrait, uh, <laughs> Frank Frazetta, Don Martin, that was the guy who did the floppy feet for Mad Magazine for many years, Vaughn Baudet, that's the Cheech Wizard guy from National Lampoon, uh, from the magazine National Lampoon. Uh, Roger Brand, Will Eisner, we know him, Bernie Wrightson, and that's really the short list. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on, just like another dozen or more people. Um, mm. Some last-minute announcements on the last page are prophetic for the rest of this magazine's life. Uh, Wood writes, do not subscribe. I wish I could go into this with both feet and announce a schedule of publication and subscription rates, as it would make things much easier, but bear with me for the next couple of issues, and order number two when you receive number one, etc. I'm going to try to get out four issues per year, maybe six if it starts to make many, but judging by the trouble I've had getting one issue together, it may wind up as an annual. And uh, it actually wouldn't even do that a regular publishing down the line, but yeah. you know, we'll get there. Uh, after issue number four in 1967, Wally Wood sold Wits End to Bill Pearson for $1. That's right, Bill Pearson, who we did talk about in our Charlton episode. Charlton, yep. Yep. Uh, Pearson would publish it sporadically until 1985. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, which, you know, I think it had, had 13 issues total, so they did not come out very routinely after it was sold mm. to Pearson. Uh, ultimately, it would be mail order only, although this is due as much to the anti-obscenity laws as it was to a low print run, which we will cover 
much more in the next episode. But, you know, initially, the point being, Wood did do mail order, but he also probably got some low distribution in uh, head shops, you know, which would have been, you know, uh, where the hippies bought their paraphernalia and tie-dye and whatever. Uh, but but by the late 70s, that wasn't possible anymore, and we'll we'll talk about why that's true next episode. In 1969... Uh, Wally Wood created a character named Sally Forth for Military News and, and Overseas Weekly. That's two different publications, but both Army magazines. This was a character who routinely defended her virtue from horny servicemen, uh, but it was pretty harmless, uh, you know, surface stuff. And as we said, it was based on that comic from the Daily Mirror, Jane. But mm -hmm. there was no nudity. And there was barely any nudity in Jane. I think sometimes you would see a nipple. It was like... Uh, yeah, maybe. Which was okay, you know, in the UK. But uh, this was this was much more tame than that. Um, uh, not to be confused with the syndicated comic strip of the same name by Greg, by Greg Howard, which launched in 1982 and continues to today. And yeah, they couldn't be more different. Chris, you're right nope. about that. <laughs> uh, they are... The, they, the fact they have the same name is truly the only thing connecting them. So uh, Wood came to resent the comics industry and contributed a really raunchy X-rated stuff to Al Goldstein's Screw magazine and some of its spinoffs. Uh, in 1975, he contributed My Word to Big Apple Comics. The story was called My Word. This was an, an X-rated invective against the comic industry and, and its fans. It ended with him in a grave. Wood kept working the rest of his life, including a pornographic comic called Gang Bang in the early 1980s. Uh, must have been really early. Uh, featuring, yeah, uh, maybe it was late 70s, but I, I had read that it was early 80s, but it featured his character, Sally Forth. So <laughs> he's getting cantankerous, is what I'm trying to say here. And as time went on, his contentious attitude and, and deteriorating style, uh, likely due to his drinking, got him less and less work. Uh, he was married three times, first to a woman named Tatiana Wood, was her you know, married name, in 1950. They divorced in 69. That's when he really began drinking heavily and started going to therapy and then married his therapist, Marilyn Glass. He moved out to Long Island with her and her three kids from a previous marriage. That lasted two or three years, and in 1977, he had another quickie marriage, and I couldn't even find out the details. Don't know who it was or anything, any other thing about it, but uh, <laughs> I assume it, it couldn't have lasted much longer because on November 2nd, 1981, his health declining rapidly due to alcoholism, Wood shot and killed himself at his Los Angeles home. Uh, and he's quoted as having said, if I had to do it all over again, I'd cut off my hands. So this is a man who did not really love his time as a comic artist, but uh, his publication, Wit's End, was really maybe, uh, as a stretch to say, the first underground comic. Um, hmm. In a sense, you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more of that next episode. But, you know, I mean, it's sort of a, it's sort of a cheap thing to be, you know, one of the most respected guys in the industry and then claim to put out something underground, but that's, you know, something for people to argue. Absolutely. Uh, now we're going to go uh, kind of briefly into the, uh, this, the zine scene, because uh, this is something that we, we've discussed could definitely be its own, its own episode as well. Yeah. So we'll, give a, we'll, we'll just talk about how it, uh, how it, how it pertains to uh, what we're discussing today. Um, now, the first science fiction fanzine was called The Comet. It was in 1930, published by the Science Correspondence Club in Chicago. The uh, term fanzine was coined by champion chess player and sci-fi enthusiast Russ Chavonet in his October 1940s. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> this was in a, his October 1940 uh, issue of the fanzine Detours. 
Now, these early fan scenes were mainly written stories, not a lot of comics, but uh, did feature contributions by uh, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and many other sci-fi luminaries that we know of. Um, now, we also have uh, Siegel and Schuster again. They had their first Superman story. It was a, it was a very different Superman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, story, the story was called Reign of the Superman. And it was about a bald-headed evil scientist, more more akin to like Lex Luthor than Superman. Yep. And uh, this would uh, be featured in uh, their fanzine, which was called Science Fiction, The Advanced God of Future Civilization Number 3, in January 1933. So predating the Superman we know by, what, five years? Oh, yeah. Oh, exactly five yeah. years, yeah. And, and what a catchy yeah. title for a fanzine, too. I like that. <laughs> It's kind of a mouth. I was trying to pause it and see it, like, try to try to take the first letter of every word and see if there was any kind of cleverness to it. But no, there ain't. no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's just like S F T A G. No, is would be what it. Oh yeah, that's what it is. Now these were mail order magazines of varying quality. They went from newsprint to rexograph, everything in between. In uh, October 1947, Malcolm Willett started the Comics Collector News. Which was, uh, which is considered the first comics fanzine. Uh, it didn't feature any original comics. In uh, 1953, the short-lived fantasy comics by James Tarassi uh, and a mimeographed four-page fanzine about Superman was put out by Ted White. Uh, Bob Stewart created the EC Fan Bulletin in 1953, which would eventually morph into the EC Addicts Club and uh, would spawn many imitators. Uh, this fairly well kicked off the fanzine era, if if we can actually say that there was one that. If we can actually call it something real, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. would be it. Um, uh, Bob Stewart, Ted White, and Larry Stark would uh, create Potsrebi. Potsrebi? Potsrebi. I don't know if it has a real way to say it. It's just a weird word. It's a, yeah, it's P-O-T-Z-R-E-B-I-E, <laughs> uh, which is a sort of a limita- lit- literary commentary on EC Comics, uh, which came out just in time for the company to fold. <laughs> so if, if you're going to make a fanzine about a company, that's the time to do it. Exactly. Well, then it's a <laughs> retrospective. Yes. Uh, I, I feel kind of dirty saying this, but Ron Park is hoo-ha. Uh, <laughs> 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 that was probably the best-known EC fanzine. It was a hoo-ha by Ron Parker. Yeah. Uh, comic fanzines like Bill Blackbeard's All in Color for a Dime and Jerry Ball's uh, Alter Ego would start showing up in 1960. Uh, many underground artists would see their first work in these fanzines, and a few even produced their own. But uh, that's something we'll be touching more on next episode, and like we said before, this could be its own thing and probably will be because there's a lot of fanzines that had a lot of uh, would-be and future comic creators that we all know and uh, like now. Oh, absolutely. And and the history of them, there's, there's much more than just what we've said here, you know, besides the genres they spanned and how they interacted with the companies that they were, you know, fans of or the, or the, the media that they were fans of. It's, Some of them became legitimate. And absolutely, actually, it's yeah. a huge, it's a huge story. But just pertaining to this, it's just that the underground comics artists had a place to, you know, kind of get their feet wet and uh, get their trade and get seen. And of course, that would lead directly to a comic called Zap Comics Number One, which premiered, which premiered in October 1968. And that's where we're going to leave it for now, because. We have talked enough about stuff that isn't underground comics, so next episode we're going to talk all about underground comics. That's how we're going to split it up. Um, We're just setting the table. Exactly, yeah. There's a lot here, you know, that isn't underground. Mad Magazine, Trump, even Humbug, Help. We would never consider these really underground comics. In fact, 
much of their content isn't even comics, but it's important to know about these publications because this is part of the building blocks that's going to create the underground comic scene, uh, as most of us know it, which would be the 60s and 70s stuff, but we will get all into that next episode. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or you want to uh, tell us what we got wrong, or you want to maybe look at some of those Tijuana Bibles, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And of course, you can see Chris and I, we contribute regularly to the website uh, that does this podcast. That's weirdsciencedccomics.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Reggie Reggie. Nominates Comics. And I say every time we uh, record, you got to go check out Chris's blog. Chris is on infiniteearth.blogspot.com. That, uh, he, he does a DC comic, so there's nothing too racy there. It's fine for the kids. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very good, very well-written, witty stuff, and worth checking out every single day uh, because he does something new every day. But for this week, I think we have stretched out our welcome. Uh, do you have anything else for him, Chris? <laughs> No, I think I think we're good. This was uh, I, this is something that I only knew of uh, kind of surface level. So uh, this this entire underground endeavor has been quite the education for oh, me. I found yeah. it very fascinating, and uh, I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping that our passion for it is a uh, is something that comes through. I hope so. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, once you get your pickaxe and your mining helmet and dig into underground comics, you realize. They really are very important in the history of American comics and, and even comics mm-hmm. to an extent worldwide. And uh, I hope to really show much more of that in the next episode. And I believe this will end up being three episodes. So hopefully you'll get mm-hmm. uh, more of that. But until we get to those, I want you to keep it historically weird and sexy. Later. <laughs> <laughs>